The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, Louis Pello, is a celebrated photojournalist with work exhibited in numerous private and public collections. Recently in Afghanistan in combat conditions, he now brings back a body of work that he will be discussing on this program. My guest today, Louis Palu, is a celebrated photojournalist with work exhibited in numerous private and public collections, both in the United States and abroad. His work produced in Afghanistan while embedded in combat conditions has been highly recognized through publications such as Afghanistan, The Fighting Season. Now back home, he is immersed in Aftermath, a project exploring the social regeneration of countries in the years following war as well as many other diverse projects. Louis, welcome. Hello. Whereabouts are you these days, Louis? I know that you have been um, on foreign soil for some time. Where, where are you residing now? I'm relaxing and editing work in Washington, D.C. That must be a huge contrast from uh, running around those, those uh, desolate lands in foreign countries. The most extreme contrast. I'd like to start, if I may, with your childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, you, you grew up as, as an Italian immigrant, um, a working-class uh, street-type uh, situation. Can you tell us what it was like in your childhood, and, and where did you reach a point where perhaps you were looking at the arts or uh, journalism as your future? Well, uh, actually, uh, I was born in Canada. My parents were immigrants, and uh, they came over. They they were born before the Second World War, um, so sort of conflict resides in my family history. Uh, My grandfather actually supplied food and resources to the insurgents known as the Partisans that were fighting the Germans back then. Um, I was was born in Toronto, and uh, for me, life was quite simple. My father was a laborer. My mom... Uh, by the time she had me, she had retired from working as a seamstress in what I would, by today's standards, call a sweatshop. And uh, it was a very happy life, you know. It was very sort of straightforward. My dad worked. My mom took care of me and my sister. It was just two of us. And uh, I sort of grew up in a working-class neighborhood. So for me, hard work and sort of uh, a simple lifestyle with very few things and very few belongings is the way I grew up. Um, growing up into my teens, um, I'd say it was a pretty straightforward childhood, and it was really when I discovered uh, music, and really it was punk rock that, that really changed the way I thought about the world. The Clash, Dead Kennedys, the Sex Pistols, uh, this is music that carried more than just sort of uh, enjoyable sound or harmonies. This is music that was, for me, a very big movement, and what was really connected with that was I listened to The Clash, and along with that, they, they had 
reggae-influenced music, which was full of rebellion, and a big part of my neighborhood was West Indian Jamaican. And that was a very big part of, you know, my identity growing up as a teenager. And so that kind of pushed me into the arts as something that I felt comfortable with expressing myself. Can I ask you, I grew up in England, uh, surrounded by um, uncles and, and relatives who had been involved not only in the Second World War, but also the Great War. And we, we did grow up, uh, we, we all grew up um, with that history, uh, uh, surrounded by these individuals who had uh, been in the Battle of Britain and uh, and and fought in the trenches in the Somme in the in the Great War, uh, and it, it was it was part of life, you know that 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 is what you you knew because you were surrounded by these um, these wonderful people who had actually travelled through those war years. Is that something that happened for you as well? Because it sounds as if the that music that you talk about was almost a huge relief. Uh, provided such a, a, a massive um, segue into a different life after growing up, um, uh, understanding how your parents were involved in those war years? Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, being Canadian as well, uh, th there is a long-running history and connection between Britain and Canada, and there isn't a single part of Canada that you're not going to walk through, and there's going to be a monument to the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, and it was always a, a very big part of, of, you know, your history and your schooling when you were young. And uh, I think that uh, growing up in the Cold War, which was sort of the first war I grew up through, a lot of people don't realize that it was very much a war, um, just not fought as we saw it in films or in history books where there's two sides and they battle over a piece of geography. Um, that's so literally understood. Um, the, the punk rock music sort of was this release for me of being young, confused, full of a lot of emotions, and full of a lot of ideas, and not having any focused ideas on how to use all this energy I had as a young, thinking, creative individual. And it was really when I grabbed onto photography, and with this music moving alongside, it sort of, they sort of subconsciously bonded in my mind, and I think that that felt, I go by gut feelings a lot in my life. Uh, that felt like the right thing to follow. That felt like the right thing to think about, and that felt like the right thing to use to express my ideas as, as a part of our society. Was there any consideration at that time in utilizing writing uh, as that driving force versus the visualization of photography, or was it photography that, that was to be your vehicle? Uh, there was some consideration with doing writing, and I've always kept, like, sketchbooks, and I, I, you know, quote-unquote use the word sketchbooks. I mean, 
I've always liked to write, but it was very much a private part of, of my expression writing. And photography, I really felt like, hey, I could go photograph something and say, hey, look, I don't like what's going on here. Or, hey, everybody, look at this. This shouldn't be happening, or we should know about this. And that's, that's what punk rock music did to me. It was a calling. It called me and said, hey, this should not be going on, or this is going on and it's wrong, or this is going on and we need to pay more attention to it. So, in other words, punk rock, uh, that era I remember so well back in England, yeah. uh, was part of that postmodern era as it were yeah. it's almost a, a paradigm wasn't it that was uh, pushing back on, on on that whole post-war history that we were that we were so immersed in it, it, it was so different uh, that yeah. that that whole era from well probably the 60s onwards which really defines the postmodern era that we're in but it was punk rock that that really was so uh, effective in in opposing um, the 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 two or three generations before us. Definitely, and I think that it really was definitely me pushing back and saying, "Hey, look, you know, look, I, I like the music of the '60s in that era, but we're in a whole new time now. I need something to help me understand now." And what really made me understand the world, and what really made me start looking at things like sort of the fallout of the Cambodian War and all these other issues and what was going on in England. I remember watching on TV the miners' strike in the 80s. I remember seeing this picture of thousands of miners marching through uh, London, and that later came sort of to roost in my life as a photographer. Arthur, and, you know, Arthur Scargill and, 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 and his crew. I remember seeing footage of Arthur Scargill being arrested on picket lines with miners by riot police, and that had a massive effect on me. And there was a lot of music that talked about the Thatcher years, and that music pushed back against all these sort of rosy, romantic sort of memories and coming to terms with the Vietnam War. Oh, that had nothing to do with my generation anymore. Definitely important to remember and to study, but I needed to understand who I was at that time, just as I need to understand who I am now all the time, and, and, and photography helps me understand that. And it's very interesting that you graduated uh, from the uh, Ontario College of Art, I believe, and uh, at that point you found a great uh, mentor in Mary Ellen Mark. And then, of all things, uh, one of your first projects that you become involved in is documenting the working lives of miners. Uh, that is extraordinary. Now, is that something that you explored simply because of the memories of Arthur Scargill and what you saw in that social upheaval in Great Britain back in the 70s? Uh, in a very big part, definitely. Um, you know, when I, when I got to Mary Ellen Mark in New York, um, I definitely had sort of matured in many ways. Uh, by this time, it, I, you know, the punk rock and, and sort of all this political and socially sort of themed music had educated me enough that by now I'm reading the New York Times, by now I'm reading the editorial pages, by now I'm reading many, many books on a number of issues. I'm reading books by Marcus Aurelius on philosophy. I'm understanding the world in a much more sophisticated way. And when I got to Marilyn Mark, what I really got there was inspiration. Her strength of character and just who she is and how she got things done, I thought, wow, I, I never learned that in school. Like, you can't, be, you can't get taught that, I thought. And I, she really influenced me. And when I came back home, 
I thought, well, the best advice I got when I was in New York is start where you stand. And I stood in a neighborhood of working class people. And I thought, what has not been photographed very well in this world? And I thought, the people who work in one of the richest mining regions in the world, which is, there's this entire geological belt north of Toronto and Montreal and Quebec City. And some of the richest gold, copper, nickel, and zinc mines and silver mines were up there. And I just thought, this is where I'm going. And I really had a hard time sort of making money as a photographer. And so I just thought, I'm going to make whatever I can at whatever job I can. I'm just going to go up there and be a photographer, and I'm not going to give a damn about the money end of it at this point. Very sort of idealistic view when you're young, uh, and, and you don't think about the reality of money, which is definitely a very important part of getting things done. But I went up to the mines, and I, I, I fell in love with the project. I really believed in what I was doing. You had stated to me in a response that it was a very depressing place, and I'm sure that uh, deep down in coal mines is. But it isn't, is it not amazing that the human position opposes that um, by the great people that you met? This huge determination and zest for life despite their conditions of where they work. Definitely. You know, I got up there, and I got to say, in the winter, we spoke earlier before the program about cold. I mean, we're talking minus 40 Celsius with the wind some days. Like, some days, I'd hold the clutch down on my Jeep, and I'd have to hold it down for 15 minutes for the transmission fluid to defrost. I'd have square tires, that, you know. You'd go underground at 7 in the morning, and it's dark. You come up at 4 o'clock, and it's dark, because the day is so short. You're underground all day, and it's dark. Well... Human beings are not supposed to live in those kinds of conditions, let alone what the mines are like themselves. And I think, I think that I just hadn't found the answer to who I was yet. And I was kind of depressed over that. I was kind of sad, like, who am I? What's my position in this world? What does this life all mean? It's sort of these, these eternal questions that all human beings ask themselves. And I, I was quite uh, frustrated. And, and it became depressing, along with, being, you know, 8,000 feet underground, um, hearing about people you got to know getting killed, um, the horrible sort of details about how people are killed. You know, flesh and bone always lose against explosive steel and rock. And uh, I have to say, I probably had as many close calls in some of these underground mines as I did in Afghanistan. I'm interested, actually, because you did state uh, in the documentation that we, we uh, moved from, from uh, to each other that your pictures are symbolic of the journey of your life. Do you not think that life is such that we are constantly in a state of flux, particularly artists always trying to find themselves, trying to affiliate themselves with a, a very uh, analytical world at, at the best of times that we have a different view upon? Um, is that the case with you, Louis, even to this day, that you are still trying to find yourself, as I'm sure that many of us are? Yeah, definitely. I find as I've gotten older, I've had some phases where things are a little more sort of stable, and I'm not that I'm unhappy, but I'm happier than usual. Um, but de definitely, I think I didn't realize how much the work actually reflected sort of my own path symbolically with a lot of the photos. Um, you know... When I did that miners project, I, I, I wasn't even experienced enough as a photographer to really take on that kind of a project. And uh, I, I, I really think that 
some of the picture just reflected me as a human being just saying, hey, I was here. This is how I felt. And these are the things I found. And it took me many, many years to understand even some of the pictures I had taken, which now I look back and go, wow, I really was saying that. I just, I didn't, I couldn't understand it consciously. And uh, it, it just really made me proud that I was able to find who I was uh, at that time. And now, of course, you're changing all the time. You're getting older, you have, you're moving around, I'm changing countries, I'm making new friends, finding new relationships. And, you know, sometimes that flux is very, very painful because you think you found it, uh, you have all this information, and suddenly these huge sort of uh, questions appear in front of you after you've experienced some extreme things and you think, wow, I really don't understand anymore again. How do I get out of this? And it really is, I have to say, for me personally, my path is using the camera, using the photograph. And, uh, you know, I think for doctors and for other people in this world, for all their other professions or for all their other goals and hopes, uh, they, they find their own path in other ways. But for me, thank God I found the camera. And I have to say, at an early age, someone who was hugely influential on me, and this ties back to Britain, was Don McCullen. Yes. And, uh, you know, I just, we used to look at his photographs and think, wow, he's really saying what I'm trying to say by myself. But until I take a picture that says it about me, I haven't found it. It's strange. I had the great pleasure of talking to Vince Pace, the really the man behind the 3D uh, work that you see in Avatar. And I did pose the question to him that in the five years that it took them to create the not only the technology but to create the dynamics of the film with James Cameron, that almost you're a, a, a guinea pig, I suppose. You're you're constantly in R and D. But I I was very proud in his response because he actually came back and said, "Not really. Uh, what we're doing is we are creating a paradigm. We we are the ones who are." Um, developing a whole new way of media and i look back at a lot of photographers in the past um you know the norman parkinson's and uh, the lord snowden's and mm -hmm. if you if you do read their biographies very often they will say that they were in situations where they felt that they were um not experienced enough and yet if you talk to them in later life they actually say i look back now and i realize it was the part of the course of life and i was meant to be there and it wasn't about being uh, experienced or inexperienced it was simply the fact that i was learning life and traveling forwards in life down this road yeah i i really feel like it's kind of you know not to not to use the metaphor of the road so much like so many people do, but it, it, there is a path and a journey. And uh, a lot of people say, hey, you can go back to Afghanistan. Don't don't go back. Please don't go back anymore. You know, these are loved ones saying this to me. And um, I really think that sometimes uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I really believe in destiny or, or you know, this, was, this is the way I got to go. But we do have the path we got to take and we know most of the times in 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 our hearts we know what the path is we need to take and and you can't diverge off that too much because uh especially as an artist you know i remember looking at at that film it's called hearts of darkness it's about the making of apocalypse now which is a film as a storyline as a piece of art that i always enjoyed and i remember watching francis ford coppola going through this process and i thought 
what a, I mean, who would go so insane to make <laughs> a piece of art? Suicidal almost. Definitely. I mean, let alone all his actors being high on drugs. But I thought, what am I talking about? I do the same thing, just in a much smaller sort of little world. And I think that um, I, I'm led very much by my heart. And I'm very, you know, some people might call that their gut. But I'm led very much by my heart, and I work very organically. Um, I can't, I don't work as well when someone says, hey, here's two weeks, go to this place and take these pictures. I mean, I'll do a very good job, but my best work is when I just kind of go on my own and do my thing for as long as I feel like I need to do it. And if I need to go back to finish it, then I'll go back. And that doesn't tailor itself very well to magazines so much. But I have been lucky that people still respond to the work you know, in a great way. Well, if you look back over those years and you have now amassed amazing material, you have been exhibited nationally and internationally, re- been the recipient of so many wonderful awards. And now you are traveling to Afghanistan. And I'm sure that many people try to ward you away from that idea and probably didn't like that idea. But as you say, uh, I think with many of us, when you know that you have to do something, you do it, uh, not despite the, the despite the circumstances. So now you're traveling to Afghanistan. Uh, what is your mandate there, Louis, apart from the fear of going there and not knowing what to expect? Did you have an inspiration, an expectation of what it is exactly that you wanted to achieve? Well, I started going there in 2006, and uh, I'll be honest, you know, it was kind of a twofold reason I wanted to go there. Uh, One, being Canadian and and still being very much interested and in love with my country, uh, Canada was taking on a combat mission, literally going to war for the first time since the Korean War. So that definitely interested me. Uh, The second really was because there was this major conflict going on and no one was paying attention to it. Everybody was focused on Iraq, and it is important to focus on all conflicts. But no one was interested in Afghanistan anymore. You know, it really became what many people later called the Forgotten War. It already was forgotten, actually. And I went in 2006, and there was a suicide bombing campaign. I mean, thank God that that... You know, at least that part of it is not happening as much anymore. But it was just this incredible, like, I forgot how many there were, like 180 or something. And uh, I got there and I was like, wow, this place is so poor, people have no idea. Like, at the time, and probably still to this day, 50% of the people in Kabul, the largest city, draw their water from a well. That shocked the hell out of me. Most people in the countryside, which is the majority of the population, live in biblical times. Their homes are mud-walled homes, literally mud. No electricity, no running water, very few, if no paved roads. I mean, nothing, no transit. I mean, in the cities, yes, there's, uh, and there's only a few, but out in the countryside, there is nothing. And that's really where the war is taking place, out in the countryside. And uh, my mandate really was uh, to start covering more of the civilians. Uh, I think it's important to cover sort of each country's troops and, and if it's your own country to cover what your government's involved in. But uh, more and more it became covering uh, sort of the civilian situations. And the area I really wanted to focus on was uh, two districts. They're just outside Kandahar City and it's where Mullah Omar 
founded and started the Taliban movement. It's probably the most violent area of the entire country. And very few people even knew about it. You it, know... But if, if you return to that now... Yes. I mean, look back on it. It must have been a very frightening time. I mean, goodness only knows I, I haven't been into combat conditions, and I hope to God that I never will be. I've been in some fairly hairy situations in my lifetime with my work. But if you look back on that, uh, you know, what frustrates me, I suppose, is that if you look back over the last 100 years, you had a young Winston Churchill who, who went into Afghanistan, uh, ordered his... Um, uh, I believe it was Captain Youngblood back in the 20s to go into Afghanistan who literally wiped out about three tribes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we found out, of course, that it was a country that we had no control over whatsoever because of its geographical uh, uh, features uh, and remoteness. Uh, and because of so many different tribes and so many hostilities. And then, of course, we get to the the Afghanistan uh, occupation, you know, uh, Russian occupation, Soviet yeah. Union, and and surely you can have a good uh, view upon this, having been over there, because I certainly have not, and I don't know about our listeners. But is it not at times looking back on it futile that w that we are there now? Is it a country that we can really? Uh, organize socially in fact i would probably think that we have more opportunity to socially reorganize iraq than we do afghanistan would that be a sensible statement uh your last statement for sure about reorganizing iraq iraq is kind of already organized in a sense uh they, they got a massive economy they got you know infrastructure i've not been there but this is from talking to many colleagues and good friends who who've worked there and covered the situation there and from a lot of the studying I've done you know I've never gone to Iraq because I always felt like if I went there I would get killed not come back so following my gut I just never went to Iraq maybe that'll change but on Afghanistan there's a fantastic book and anyone who wants to read about Afghanistan should read The Great Game uh, I'm sorry the author's name escapes me but The Great Game is the book and what you really understand is that um, during the sort of British Empire, when India, uh, sorry, when Britain controlled India, and during the expansion of, during the many Tsars of Russia and their expansion south, what they all ended up doing was they ended up hitting Afghanistan. And everybody who tried moving through or into Afghanistan, uh, the land and the people, just, and the, the, just the general conditions, no one could ever make it through there. And really, you know, it's funny that a rail line, which especially, you know, centuries ago was, was so vital and important to sort of building countries, has never existed in Afghanistan. There's no rail line in the country. And imagine that negates the country from having any real economy or development of economy through the industrial age. So Afghanistan hasn't even, in, you know, experienced the industrial age. Well, um, I, I suppose, Louis, in a way, that's why uh, Winston Churchill did not stay there. He probably turned his concentration to building the Indian Railway that, that uh, wound its way through Iraq down to the Indian uh, Empire. Yes. Yeah, and really, you know, I, w I would say this. You know, I, I see demonstrators, and I see a lot of people talk about a lot of different things. And I, I like to listen to all sides. I'm a journalist. That's my job. I'm not here 
to like or dislike any particular politician because I'm a journalist. I'm objective, I look at everybody's views, and then I report in my way just taking photographs. And I would say that it is our responsibility as a world to figure out a way to best repair the problem of Afghanistan because it is not going to go away. And I think that the stakes have finally risen in the region where there are nuclear weapons next door, and this is no excuse uh, for someone to make an explanation to say that uh, now we can occupy and control it, you know, and have a public government. Uh, and of course, many of these accusations are true about the corruption, and, but there's corruption all throughout the world. But I think that Afghanistan needs to be dealt with once and for all. It's probably one of the few, if not the only countries that has for centuries been alone and in its situation and had such a long history of war, destruction, and occupation. And I think that um, with, with everything that's been invested there, uh, I think that the world needs to commit to continue to invest and, and, and to fix the, fix the situation, to fix the problem, because uh, I really think that, you know, when people say troops out, um, definitely I'd like to see, if, if possible, a non-military solution. Right now that seems like, you know, by all the experts' accounts, the way to do it. But really, if NATO were to leave, there would be immediate civil war. I guarantee it. From what I've seen, there'd be immediate civil war, and the slaughter would be beyond anything we had ever seen. So we're kind of in the worst of the best sort of situations, sadly, because it is sad. You know, someone recently commented on an article I wrote, and they said that uh, they wanted to explain to me, they, they seemed quite uh, energized by explaining to me after reading a, a story I'd written and had some photographs that, uh, you know, the whole idea everybody's there is to build this pipeline and that uh, they have a puppet U.S. government, and, uh, I mean, you know, NATO should just leave, and I just thought, you know, because they're killing many civilians, and look, everybody's killing civilians there, whether they mean it or not. I just think it's unpleasant that any civilians or tragic are being killed at all. Well, you were clearly an extremely determined individual who returned to Afghanistan, and you were really embedded with the marines i believe in real conflict combat conditions and that determination is absolutely amazing uh, that you can be so involved in a vision to be able to provide people with tangible material that they can look at pictures that they can look at words that they can listen to that that tells them exactly what it is like on the ground uh, were you prepared for that louis when you went in we're going to we've got the greater privilege of playing some uh, real um, audio in a couple of minutes that you had recorded in a combat mission was that something that you expected that you would have to endure to to award people with your vision? Well, uh, you can prepare as much as you want for combat. And uh, after a while, I became quite experienced in it, but there is so much chaos and unpredictability that really, no matter how much you prepare, when it goes down, you just... It's simple. It's you and staying alive. And then once I, I sort of stabilize that, that I'm taking pictures or shooting video or whatever I'm doing to document the scene. 
but there are times where there is no photography or anything going on, just me lying down on the ground. Um, it was a goal in my career, if it ever came to be a story that I personally thought was important for me to work on, to document combat. And, and this is when it came up. And I, I don't know, I, I think this past summer, there were days where there were 17 firefights in one day, little contacts, you know, some people might argue not firefights, but... It, there's so much gunfire all the time, and rockets, and mortars, artillery. Uh, I think after a while, you just lose a sense of everything. Can you explain to us this this uh, sound that we are hearing now? Rocket man, rocket! Whereabouts was was this, and what were you doing at the time? The audio you're hearing there is uh, actually from after a patrol we went on. We walked down a few hundred meters from a forward operating base. The soldiers I was with were going to cut some trees down so the forward operating base could see further across the field because there were so many insurgents there in that area. That area uh, is only a few kilometers from where Mullah Omar started the Taliban in Sangasar, a place uh, well-known and documented in a number of scholarly books as the birthplace of the Taliban. And uh, I went down with a unit, and we went to the left to a road called Taliban Road, or the soldiers even call it Contact Corner. Contact is a term soldiers use for uh, being in a, in a firefight or in contact with enemy. And uh, we went down, and uh, the several soldiers went to the right to cut the trees down, and we were to watch out, or at least the soldiers were to watch out, and I was there to photograph uh, if there were any surgeons coming in. Literally, we, we didn't even get to the point where we were supposed to protect. And immediately, uh, numerous civilians start streaming out of the area. And, and that's a combat indicator. That's what the military calls that. And uh, that means they're running away because they knew there was a fight coming on. And several uh, individuals began running in the opposite direction. And uh, one of the soldiers yelled at them, and they pulled out AK-47, and a, a huge battle broke out. Um, now, I think that, can, I, can I just interrupt there and just ask sure. if I may, at this time, are you still dead determined to keep taking photographs? Definitely. Um, at this point, uh, you know, I look for cover. Um, a couple of shots are being fired. Um, sort of, you gauge distance and you, you start understanding and learning the sound of assault rifle fire. You can tell where it's coming from. I was kind of in a pretty safe spot. Um, and then what ended up, ended up happening was uh, more insurgents moved up and uh, uh, a full-out, you know, big firefight began. And it was maybe 50, 75-meter contact. And this is, what, this is what we're hearing at the end here, where you, no, you actually, have... No, actually, that's when it got even worse. Uh, we had to... Uh, we were surrounded almost, and we had to run away. Uh, well, they, the insurgents moved so close to us that they could not use, the soldiers couldn't use artillery or an airstrike because they were too close. It's called danger close. So they couldn't use it because they could mistakenly bomb us as well. So the idea was to uh, leave or egress out as a military term, run back to the forward operating base. We had to, it's about 120 degrees. You got about 100 pounds of you know, body armor, helmets, a backpack full of water, cameras, the soldiers have more weight. And you're running, sprinting for your life pretty much, um, through as much cover as you could find, all the way back to the forward operating base. And then uh, on the way back, the insurgents felt like they saw us, us running. 
and a launch an attack on the forward operating base and attempt to overrun the forward operating base. And it was such a surprise, the, the amount of insurgent sort of fire and, and quick tactical movement surprised the entire forward operating base. And it was a very small combat outpost, really. And they fired an RPG, they hit the tower, um, uh, lots of small arms fire, and basically... Um, Two soldiers ran up into the tower and started manning those machine guns. And I ran around the back of the FOB, into the FOB, and ran right up into the tower. And just a hail of gunfire being exchanged. And those, those machine guns, that's, you're hearing the desperate moments trying to hold the Taliban off as everybody in the Ford operating base tries to get a position to try and return fire. And so they can get, they wanted to call some artillery and to like sort of push the Taliban back. But they were not moving back. They just kept moving forward. And you're hearing the chaos of how, no matter how well-planned or how well-trained, uh, the chaos of battle amongst the soldiers and them yelling for ammo. And you hear someone changing a barrel. You know, you fire so many rounds with some machine guns that the barrels get so hot that the bullets don't fire accurately out of them anymore. they got to change out the barrels. What are your thoughts now? You, you must be terrified. Are you still notwithstanding all this 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 uh, combat uh, uh, um, activity and this terror around you determined to keep taking photographs? Yeah, at this point, I've got the basic base and fundamental sort of understanding of the best safety I could have. There's some situations that you can only have so much safety, like you're there, you went out, you made the decision to go, but that's not going in my mind. I think, okay, this is the safest I, I can be in this situation. And what I'm really thinking of is, okay, am I composing this right? Uh, am I doing this the right way? Can I get something else? Uh, do I want to move over here, or is that too dangerous? And, and the danger thing comes up all the time if you're going to move or if you're going to change positions. Now, during that scene, is an, uh, I, you know, I'm only thinking about it later, but there are a number of rounds, bullets going by our heads. Um, there is really nowhere else for me to go. Um, and I'm thinking of light. I'm thinking of all these sort of... You know, it, it's almost crazy that I'm thinking about these things. But uh, at that, on that particular day, I was focusing on sort of framing, uh, stay, you know, staying out of the way. There's, there's ammo being moved. There's people moving around. There's people with guns moving around. You got to make sure you don't get shot by the people you're with as well. Um, or you get in the way of them doing whatever their job is to do. So in that particular case, I, I was pretty focused. There have been days where that's all going on, and I'm just cursing profanity and uh, trying to roll into the nearest ditch if I can even move. Um, you know, most bullets don't go below 18 inches. So if you're lying flat on the ground and you can get even lower, all the better, as long as it's not large weaponry like an anti-tank rocket or something like that. Now, it almost appeared that when you returned to base camp, at times, according to your own words, that other people, uh, particularly in the media, were looking at you rather strangely. Were, how were you changing? How were you adapting? Were you uh, becoming terribly uh, centric or, or becoming uh, terribly guerrilla-minded uh, at that stage that uh, notwithstanding anything that would come your way, you were going to be going out that next morning and you were going to return to those conditions? Well, I think, you know, when you operate so far on to the front lines, and a lot of people sort of laugh and say, but isn't the whole of Afghanistan the front line? 
And I could say, in a way, yes, but there are places that I know about and I've been to where you know it's the front line. You walk only a few hundred meters and you'll be in a battle. Um, and I really wanted and, and did make it my mandate to document those front lines so we know what they look like because it's a different kind of war than we've experienced in a long time. It's a different, it looks different, the people are different, the, the history is important. And, uh, you know, those are rough conditions. And I think just physically and visually, you just start looking, you know, you're dirty, my beard starts growing, and I can grow a pretty big beard. Um, you haven't showered in two or three weeks. Uh, you're covered in dirt. Um, you're exhausted. You know, you go on combat operations. You can go on a, I've gone on operations like, you know, you go on six days, you land, a helicopter drops you off at, you know, four in the morning. And for six days, you march and sleep whenever you can. You got ticks, you got fleas, you got a rash, you got sort of everything imaginable. You got trench foot. You know, this is like World War One here. Immersion foot, they call it, which is from crossing cold rivers and the heat. Um, you know, after a while, I think that it, it is so draining. And then on top of that, you throw in the body and mind's response to being in, in near-death situations where you're being shot at. You know, the heart rate usually goes about three times as fast when you're in under fire, the adrenaline. And I think that the body reacts as naturally as it can to those conditions. What about the and, men uh, What about the men that you're, you're with for all that length of time? How, how does that relationship bond with these men and women who are protecting you uh, how how would you illustrate that? How would you describe that to our listeners who are no doubt so terrified by the men and women that we are constantly sending over there? Well, I definitely want to uh, confirm that it is men and women. Um, you see a lot less women in, say, the U.S. military in the front lines, but, say, the Canadian and the British, they, they send their women out a lot more, like as medics, MPs, Less infantry, but uh, you will see them more often than, say, in the U.S. military. But um, to your question, um, it is very exhausting. And, you know, a lot of these, these, these young men and women are in their 20s. There's a few people in their 30s. But, you know, if the war is going on for so long, and there's so many of them now, um, young 20-year-olds, and I have to say, although I'm 41 and I, I go out with many 21, 22, 23-year-olds, when you're in those those situations, a lot of times I forget that there's any age difference. Um, I have to always remind myself that even if bonds develop, I am still a journalist and I have to always step back and look at what's going on to make sure that I'm understanding with clarity that this is war and that there's killing going on and that it is my job to document whatever's going on. But I will say, when you live with people for a really long time, you sleep in the same tent, you watch people you get to know die, um, you, you have near misses, uh, you hope that somewhere in there you have a tie that you all want to be good and you hope to be good. And that, that, that is the, the little bit of the bond that I let, you know, and allow to happen. You, um, you it is did, funny. You, you did indicate that at one stage during that period that you were almost losing your mind. Are you almost saved, Louis, by those men and women that are around you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agreed to go to this one embed. I thought, hey, I want to go to Helmand province, and I want to go to the south. Uh, and and I, uh, the U.S. Marines, this was in 08, it was the first...
first time Marines had been sent back to Afghanistan. It was a special unit, and all this fighting had been going on. And the British had a hell of a time taking this area, and the Marines went in there in classic historical fashion and pretty much had smashed the insurgents in that area um, and really had... The insurgents just gave up. They're like, we don't want to fight these guys anymore. And uh, I got there at, in the last month of their deployment, and I just suffered like two to three months of daily fighting in Kandahar. And when I got there, there wasn't much fighting, but I have to say the conditions were most Spartan. Uh, you know, we slept... We, we didn't even have a tent. We, there was zero air conditioning, because some places there was air conditioning there. Um, we ate military rations every day, so the food was the same every day. Um, we were in a mud wall compound. Uh, there was zero electricity, really. I think at an hour a night, I'd go in the, the little HQ there and plug in my laptop and download some photos. But, you know, by the time I got there, I, I, was, I was done. I really was sort of at the end of my rope, and I just thought to myself, why am I here? I, I don't have any energy anymore, and after a while, the Marines said, are, are you going to take any pictures? Like, you've been here for a few days. And I said, oh, I'm really tired. And they said, well, you, you came here, so, you know, take some pictures. And they really sort of, I was done. I remember got to a point where I'd read magazines three or four times, and I started reading the, the advertisements and started talking to myself. And I actually, at one point, didn't even remember my name. I went to introduce myself, and I couldn't even think of my name. And that, that really scared the hell out of me. And there was no mirrors there. And one day I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. It was, it was quite frightening. And I think that uh, I, I started doing more there. There's this bunker of all things that had this beautiful light in this terrible place. And I, I just got to know these guys so well. And they kind of helped me get through this brutal sort of phase I sort of fell into, this sort of dark pit. And I started shooting the portraits, and I was editing, and one night in the HQ, when some of the Marines got around and said, wow, we like those portraits. That really makes me feel, that picture says how I feel. Really honest. I want you to know, and they, and they got into all the details of how terrible the conditions were there, how much fighting, you know, having lost friends. And I really felt like, you know what, these portraits, I said this in my head, I thought, these portraits are, this is the way my face feels, my body and heart feels. And so I did a portrait series, and I stopped covering sort of, sort of the combat stuff. And really, it was a set of pictures that the viewer doesn't look into, but the picture, the person in the picture, look out the viewer. And I wanted that to happen because I want people to face the people and understand and look eye to eye in the people that we are sending over there to fight this war. Do you miss them now? Yeah, I miss some of those Marines. They're really, really good guys. I'm in touch with some of them still, but it's hard because, you know, I am a journalist and, and I got to watch how close I get to people. So I miss them a lot. There, there's a couple of guys in that group that I, you know, still to this day, it's kind of like a laugh and a tear in the same thought when I think of them because I feel like they saved my life, man. Like, really, like in my soul, in my heart, they, they saved my life. You arrived back from your latest tour of Afghanistan and now you are working on the Aftermath Project. And the Aftermath Project, who uh, is run by uh, this wonderful lady, Sarah Terry, who I had the privilege of talking to on a program recently, um, uh, talk to me about the uh, aspects of the Aftermath that, that changed the paradigm in some ways, almost creating a new uh, genre of photography, um, photographing and recording the social regeneration of countries after the conflict rather than 
photographing the conflict itself. But I know that you are actually involved in photographing soldiers as they return back from uh, the battlefields. Um, How does that contrast with the work that you have just uh, been talking about uh, prior to leaving Afghanistan when when you recorded those those faces? Well, I have to say, uh, I met Sarah before she started Aftermath. I think I'd met her when it was just an idea, and I thought, wow, that's that's a great idea. That's that's exactly the kind of things I like working on, sort of the things no one's covering, because, you know, the media all run in during the war, and they cover it. And then, you know, years later, when everything's destroyed and there's still all these important issues to photograph, uh, no, there's nothing happening there. You know, no one wants to go. And I just thought Sarah was hugely brave and inspirational to me to not only start this foundation, but to actually get it running and have it become something that started funding projects. And for the first few years, I kind of looked at it and thought, wow, that's a great funding opportunity. Uh... I don't think I have a project to apply for that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm covering the war. And then, you know, last year I thought, I did those Marine portraits and I thought, these 20, 21-year-old guys who come home, what happens to them? Like, how about their friends that I don't see while I'm there in the battlefield who lose their legs, who have their arms blown off, you know, who have their minds destroyed, who have their hearts destroyed, who lose their family, you know, who lose, you know, their marriage. Uh, what happens to these guys? And then I thought, you know, Vietnam was this thing that I kind of just grew up after. And is it the same experience? What, what's the difference? What's, what's it like? And really, again, harping back to what we talked earlier, it's, I had to find a little bit of myself, and it was a little bit of a self-discovery for me. Because really, um, when I come back, it's very, very confusing. You know, if, if, if anyone listening has any kind of family member who goes to these places, and uh, they come home. Just give them a big hug, you know? It, it, never mind the issues and what's going on over there. Just let them come home and feel like they're home again. Because really, it, it is a hard adjustment. You know, just walking down the street, just remembering your address, like, you forget all that stuff. You're late all the time. You, 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 may, you, don't, you can't make appointments. Like, because your schedule there is wake up, put my body armor on, go on patrol. That's it. And then you're, you're so systemized at surviving every day. These millions of things that we just make happen, living in you know a modern city like either New York, L.A., Washington D.C., wherever it is, Paris, London, Moscow, uh, we take it all for granted. You know, answering the BlackBerry, you know, write a check, send the mail. You forget about all that stuff. When I get home, I, I have to write down my address, and my phone number, so I remember it after a while. And I think that we have to have huge sort of patience and understanding levels to welcome these people and help them integrate back into society. And that's what happened with the Aftermath Project, is I just thought, you know, I think it's high time that uh, we take a second look at sort of Vietnam and compare it to what's happening right now. Not as a war that's lost or anything like that, but more on the human level. And uh, I sent those portraits into the Aftermath as part of my application, and uh, the response was really, really strong. And I got funding, and I started going to uh, a lot of military hospitals, going into a lot of people's homes, people who had been really badly hurt badly burned, you know, from head to toe. Lives changed in ways that we cannot imagine or understand. And really, you know, it's about facing the hard realities of, you know, engaging in war and conflict, that these people are just as much a part of us as we are a part of them, because we together make up society, and we make up humanity. So if we're going to send people to places like that, we're going to do these kinds of things, 
I think we need to see what it does. And not only over there in Afghanistan, but over here back home. In the closing minutes of the program, would you like to define to our listeners, define to me, mm-hmm. what it is in that legacy that you wish to leave after your tour of Afghanistan, after your career thus far, photographing so many wonderful people, what is it that you want people to be able to gain from your work in the future? Oh, wow, that's a big, that's a gigantic question. Um, you know, I think I'll pass on some some of the things I've learned. And uh, really, what I've learned deepest in my heart is what I pass on. And um, I think my, my tolerance for anger and violence uh, are, are so small that I can't have them around me anymore. And I mean that in a very natural way that, you know, I don't want this to sound humorous like a hippie thing, but, uh, you know, my capacity to love people, even just sitting on the subway looking around little people and just wondering about their lives, you know, seeing sort of the, <clears throat> the worst of what humanity can do and the best that humanity can do and understanding how we all fit in that and how we should all be, which is loving individuals who have families and care for not only our neighbors here, like where we live, but caring for our neighbors in other parts of the world equally and trying to make a world for all the things that can work against that, that we can all live with. And I think that photography and looking at pictures and film as well can help us to always be reminded that as good as we got it here, we need to make it as good for everybody else that we should love in other parts of the world. Louis Peller, it's been a great privilege sharing time with you today. Certainly wish you uh, wonderful luck um, for your future career. I, for one, shall be following you with great interest. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the program. And to our listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this program today. The details of this and any other program in the series can be seen at davidgibbons.org. There is a fully functional blog at that website that uh, Louis Palu and others, I'm sure, will be happy to respond uh, to your feedback, comments or questions that you may have on this or any other program. Wherever you may be in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 